That's composer, saxophonist, and 1996 jazz master Benny Golson playing his own tune, Stablemates. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Benny Golson not only plays a terrific tenor sax, he's also probably the most important living composer in jazz today. Born and raised in Philadelphia, Benny began studying the piano when he was nine, but within a few years, he moved to the saxophone. While in high school, Golson played with several other young and hungry musicians, including Jimmy and Percy Heath, Philly Joe Jones, and his great friend, John Coltrane. When Benny Golson went to Howard University, there was no jazz program. Indeed, he wasn't even allowed to play jazz there. Times have changed. Howard now has its own jazz program and its own jazz ensemble, which gives a yearly Benny Golson Award. After earning his degree from Howard University, Benny Golson joined Bull Moose Jackson's band. He began arranging and composing almost immediately with the early encouragement of Jackson's pianist, Tad Dameron. Benny also played with Lionel Hampton and Johnny Hodges and toured with the Dizzy Gillespie Big Band from 1956 to 58. He then joined Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, where his solo on Bobby Timmons' song, Moanin', became a classic. With the Messengers, Benny Golson's writing skills blossomed as he contributed pieces for the band that have entered the jazz canon, including Blues March, I Remember Clifford, and Killer Joe. After leaving the Messengers, he and Art Farmer formed the hard bop ensemble known as the Jazz Tet. So it came as a surprise when Benny Golson moved to Los Angeles to concentrate on studio and orchestral work. During this time, he composed music for films and television shows like Ironside, Room 222, MASH, and Mission Impossible. After a long hiatus, Benny Golson returned to jazz to great acclaim, recording as well as performing internationally. Benny Golson has won many honors in his long and distinguished career, including recognition as an NEA jazz master, which he received in 1995. Golson participated in the 2012 NEA Jazz Masters concert, where he and Frank West stopped the show with their performance of the tune, Magic. I caught up with Benny Golson the following day. We spoke in the studios at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Here's our conversation. When did you find the sax, or how did the sax find you? I think the sax found me, because when I started out, I started out as a nine-year-old piano student. And I fancied that I wanted to be a concert pianist. That got a few chuckles in the ghetto when everybody was listening to the blues. <laughs> I'm talking about Chopin and Bach. <laughs> and I was steady serious about it. I mean, I practiced all the time. But then I went to hear, when I was 14, I went to hear Lionel Hampton at the Earl Theater downtown because all the kids were coming back to high school and said, Oh, man, you should hear Lionel Hampton. You should hear him play Flying Home and blah, blah, blah. So one day, I didn't go to school. I went to the theater and got a surprise in my life. The band started playing while the curtain was closed, and the spotlight was on the curtain, of course, and an announcement was made, and then the curtain slowly opened. And as that curtain opened, it was like a certain portion of my life was opening because then I began to see the saxophones in the fronts, and then I could see the trumpets behind them, and a little more the trombones, and I could see the, the bass player and the piano player, the guitar player. 
and the lights were shining on these golden instruments and it was sparkling and it was like magic. playing the music and then this saxophone player stood up and he stepped out from the saxophone section and he came to the edge of the stage. I said, well, what is he going to do? And the microphone magically came up out of the floor and he began to play. And that's when my life changed. Saxophone. I was enamored with it. So when I went home, we were poor, you know, we were on welfare then, I think. My mother couldn't afford to give me a saxophone. The piano lessons were very expensive, you know, 75 cents a lesson. And the but piano. that's a lot of money then. Then, yeah. She was she had a job as a waitress, $6 a week plus tips. I knew that was out of the question. So I began listening to the radio, waiting for a song that would include a saxophone solo. And my mother saw me doing this and asked me what I was doing. And I told her, you know, I heard the saxophone and, and I'm waiting to hear some of the saxophone solos. And when I told her that I was really thinking about becoming a saxophone player, she had a fit. Oh, she said... Jazz musicians, they take dope. <laughs> I said, Mom, I'm not interested in the dope. I'm interested in the saxophone. But eventually, she came around to my way of thinking. And I was figuring if I could get a horn, I could get a second-hand one, one of those old silver-looking saxophones from the pawn shop. Never thinking I could get a brand-new saxophone. She, she wasn't making that kind of money. You know? And uh, I didn't have a father. You know, the father walked off to the sunset earlier. And so it was just my mother and me. And uh, I remember that day when she left for work, all she had was a little package with her lunch in it. But when she was coming home, she got off the streetcar, so she had something in her hand. But she was walking toward me on the other side of the street, and I couldn't see the shape. But when she turned and crossed the street, I saw that it was elongated, and my heart almost jumped out of my body. I said, this can't be a saxophone. It just can't be. And when she got close enough for me to hear her voice, she leaned forward slightly and said, I have something for you, baby. I almost died. She came in the house, put the saxophone down on the couch, and opened it. It was a brand-new Martin's tenor saxophone. And I immediately became depressed. I thought you just picked this thing up and played it. I thought it was all in one piece. The body was in one piece. The neck was over here. And the mouthpiece was in a little compartment over here in the ligature. And you had to get the re... I didn't know even how to put it together. I couldn't make a sound. She says, oh, Mrs. Mitchell's son plays the saxophone. We went around to where Tony lived. And he happened to be home. And I showed him the saxophone. And he says, oh, you know, he showed me how to put it together. He said, play something. I said, I don't know how to play. So I remember he put on a recording by Duke Ellington. And he took my horn. He put the reed on, the ligature, and the mouthpiece. And he began to play with the recording. Duke Ellington's recording was playing. And it was called the Cottontail. And he was playing my horn with Duke Ellington. And I was listening to him. I'm saying, that's the sound of my horn. And that's how it began. Thank you. 
I knew how to read music, but I didn't know how to apply it to the saxophone. So she had bought it at Wurlitzer's downtown, where you pay a dollar down and a dollar a week for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> so they had teachers there, and you could get a block of lessons, 10 lessons. You get them in advance, pay for them in advance, and you go each week. And I happened to have a, a teacher who used to be a saxophone player with uh, Charlie Barnett. He, his claim to fame was he recorded Cherokee. Charlie Barnett, and he decided he wanted to come off the road and come home, and so he became a teacher down there, and he was my teacher. Best thing that ever happened to me because he taught me all sorts of stuff that really put me in good stead. Raymond Ziegler. Yeah, he's gone now, but he got me started. And as years went by, don't you know, I played the Earl Theater where I first heard Lionel Hampton, and he came to see me. Oh, that's neat. We have to talk about your great childhood friend, John Coltrane, another oh. great saxophonist. <laughs> yeah, John, everybody knows him for his greatness, but we did not start out great. <laughs> I met John when I was 16. I think he was about 18. And, uh, of course, I used to practice in my, when I first got my horn. I, it was in the summertime, and I used to practice in the living room right on the front of the the house and the windows were up with the screens in it so everybody could hear me playing and the neighbors wanted to kill me well i met him and he joined me and they wanted to kill two people <laughs> but we both got better and we got hired in this big local band jimmy johnson and his ambassadors john was still playing alto then and i was playing tenor and we were doing we thought we were doing quite well i was still in high school by then he was i was 16 he was 18 yeah and uh, the jobs were usually on the weekend, Friday, Saturday, maybe a Sunday, which was great for me because I was still in school. And we lived for those jobs. The music was corny, but at least we felt that we were moving ahead to be hired and working in a big band playing the stock arrangements. And we had a solo, maybe four bars here, six bars here, not two courses, anything like that, you know. But it was okay, you know, it was a stepping stone to something better. And uh, both of us got fired. <laughs> we were playing so bad. <laughs> they fired both of us. <laughs> oh, I remember we came back to my house. We were standing in my living room, <laughs> so depressed. My mother saw us standing there. We were usually sitting there listening to 78 records. And my mother saw us standing in all the pain because we had just come back. They said that the job was canceled, and we went up to find out that it wasn't canceled. They were playing with somebody else. So we came back to my house with that realization, and we were standing, and I wanted to cry so bad. And I know he wanted to cry, but we were too hip to cry in front of each other, you see. So my mother saw us in the pain, and she came in the living room. We were just standing in the middle of the floor, and she put her arm around both of us, and she squeezed us. And she said, don't worry, baby. Both of you all will be so good that one day they won't be able to afford you. And we didn't believe it. But years later, we were playing the Newport Festival. He had just put his quartet together, and he just recorded my favorite things on the soprano. And Art Farmer and I just put the jazz set together and did, uh, recorded Killer Joe. And uh, we happened to be in the same tent, warming up. And he had his soprano, and he was playing it, and he was trying to find a reed, and I had my horn trying to make sure everything was all right. And all of a sudden, he took his horn out of his mouth, and he started laughing hilariously. And I said, what? He said, you remember what your mother told us? <laughs> you know, about one day they wouldn't be able to afford us. I said, yeah. He said, well, those guys are still in Philadelphia and we're at Newport. And when we laugh, things change. <laughs> they sure do. 
You know, you came into jazz in this transitional moment. As you said, you were originally inspired by Lionel Hampton, yeah. and then along came Charlie Parker, and mm. along came Dizzy Gillespie. Can, That's right. Can you remember that shift? Oh, I remember so well. We heard that Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie were coming to town on a concert down at the uh, concert hall, and we decided we were going to go. So we went that night, not knowing quite what to expect. And uh, it was Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and they began to play, and we heard things that we'd never heard before. When I'm talking about a good performance. It went beyond good, things that we had never heard heard before and they played a latin tune the likes of which we'd never heard and john and i were looking at each other and i said sounds weird because we'd been used to playing stock arrangements but this was totally different and john said yeah it sounds like snake music you know the little guy with the snake in the straw basket and he's playing and the snake is curling out of it sounded like that i didn't know what the heck he was talking about i said yeah (laughs) (laughs) so they played this tune and this latin sounding tune and they played an interlude and then they made a break and charlie parker filled the break in or usually the break was filled in with just two bars he took four bars and played it double tempo well, we were screaming like the Beatles groupies. You know how the Beatles groupies used to do when they... We were screaming. He was trying to climb up my body, and I was grabbing him. We'd never heard anything like that in our lives. It was a night in Tunisia. We'd never heard that. Never. So after the the, the, the show performance, you know, we went backstage, and you know, like kids do, we were getting autographs from everybody. We got Dizzy Gillespie's and Slam Stewart and the other guys, and Charlie Parker was going out the door. So I said, Mr. Parker's going out the door, John. We've got to catch him. So we ran up Locust Street, and we caught up with him, and we said, Mr. Mr. Parker, we want to get you an autograph. He was going to a club. He had finished the concert, which was in the afternoon, from about 4 to about 7, and then he was going to play at the club that night. So we said, well, can we walk along with you? So he said, okay. John was on his left, said, can I carry your horn? Well, he let him carry his horn, and I was on the right. See, John never did much talking. I was always the talking whenever we went out. So I'm going to get to the root of how is this guy playing this kind of stuff. So I began with all of my dumb questions that had nothing to do with what he was playing. (laughs) What kind of horn do you play? (laughs) And I was making a mental note of this. What kind of mouthpiece do you use? What brand reed do you use? What number reed do you use? And I was cataloging this. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to learn how to play like that. And uh, we got to the club. We were too young. We were too young to go in the club. So he, he took his horn. And as he departed, he says, I'll be on the lookout for you kids. Keep up the good work. And he went upstairs. Now, I had to go to school next day. And they played from 9 till 2. I didn't care what my mother said when I got home. We stayed there from 9 till 2. Because we could hear them. They were on the second floor, but we were staying on the first floor. But we could hear them when they were playing. And as they were playing, we were saying, what if we could learn to play like that? It was such an experience. So we didn't have much money. We were in South Philadelphia, and we lived in North Philadelphia. 
So we had to walk home, of course, but on the, that walk home was like no other walk. We'd heard this music that got into our bodies, our psyche, and we just dreamed with each other on the way home. Do you think we could do this? Maybe we could do this and that. How long will it take? Will the opportunity come? You know, that kind of talking. Then we got to where we lived. He went to the east side. I went to the west side to where we lived. And we were together almost every day. And then I didn't see him for about a week. Wonder what was wrong. I got a call and he said, Benny, did you try any of that stuff Mr. Parker was talking about? The mouthpiece and the reading and everything? I said, yeah. He said, did anything happen? I said, no. He said, me either. <laughs> it was more than the reading and the mouthpiece. <laughs> Stupid kids. <laughs> But we, we caught on. We caught on. This time went by. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, when you started writing, Benny, did you know this is what you wanted to do? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It gave a different satisfaction than playing. Oh yeah, it's different. It's uh, hmm. people ask me which do you like the best, saxophone or the uh, the writing? I said I'm a musical bigamist. I like them both. I'm married to them both. Yeah. But yeah. it's a different satisfaction. It's different satisfaction, mm -hmm. yeah. One, I'm there waiting in the maternity room with the writing. Other is spontaneous right there at the moment. And whatever you do, it's there and it's gone. The other, you can preserve it. You can change it from a B-flat B to a B-natural. You, you can do it. You can reshape. But when your plan is spontaneous, you can't change anything. What you say is, that's it. But you can shape what you're doing as you write. That's one of the advantages. You know? yeah. It's two different worlds. And when I write, I don't think about the playing. When I play, I don't think about the writing. Miles Davis recording Stablemates was a real game changer for you in a lot of ways, wasn't it? You said it. He gave me status. He gave me believability. Because Philly Joe joined Miles' group. Philly and I played together in a local group before all of that, you know. And, but Miles heard him and liked him. And when he joined him, Hank Mobley was the tenor player. But Hank was recording for Blue Note Records during that time, and he was becoming pretty popular. And uh, he was becoming very well known. So he decided maybe this is the time for him to go out on his own and begin doing his own thing. So he was going to leave Miles. And Miles loved the way Philly played. So he figured if he'd asked Philly if he knew of a tenor player, it would be somebody of the same ilk. So he said, do you know of a tenor player in Philly? And Philly said, yeah. So Miles said, what's his name? He said, John Coltrane. So Miles was a little uncertain about it. He says, no, I never heard of him. Can he, can he play? And Philly probably made the understatement of his life because he simply said, mm-hmm. <laughs> so John left our coterie of musicians because you used to have jam sessions all the time, and he joined Miles. And so I saw him two weeks later, Columbia. We both lived in North Philly. I ran into him on Columbia Avenue. And I said, John, how's it going with Miles? He said, it's going great. He said, but he needs some tunes. He said, do you have any tunes? I said, do I have any tunes? That's all I had, tunes. So I'd written this oddball tune. It was kind of crazy tune, I thought. I said, maybe it's oddball enough he might like it. So I gave it to John, and it was Stablemates. I didn't think any more about it. Nobody ever recorded anything of mine. I 
to him about a month later, and he said, Ben, you know that tune you gave me? I said, yeah. He said, we recorded it. I said, what? I said, he said, yeah. I said, Miles recorded my tune? He said, yeah, he dug it. When I saw Miles, Miles said to me, what were you smoking when you wrote that? <laughs> yeah. That's what got me started as a jazz, not as a saxophone player, as a jazz composer. Yeah, that was the one. And now they play that tune everywhere. Everywhere I go, they play that tune. It's incredible. You never know what's going to happen just down the right. If you did, you'd say, well, I think I'll write a hit tune today. Every day. <laughs> there, yeah, there is no such thing. And what decides, I don't decide, the audience, the people here decide buy the CDs that they buy, the money they plop, plunk down to come and hear you play it, they decide. It's all about the number of people who pay to hear it and buy what you play. That's what decides. Well, you played with Dizzy Gillespie in the mid-50s. What did you learn playing with Dizzy Gillespie? I learned a number of things. I learned how to pace yourself. You know, if you try to play at the top all the time, high and fast, you got nowhere else to go. You have to learn to pace it. I learned that space sometimes is as important as the notes if you place it strategically. And what space accomplishes, I'm not talking about a minute, just a moment or two. Space, what it accomplishes, it gives the audience a chance, in a microsecond, to reflect on what you've just played and to anticipate what you're going to play, which creates an element of anticipation, which is good. Space, just to take a breath and not wall-to-wall notes, you know, not a complete tapestry. And if the drummer's good, when you take that breath, he's going to do something to set you up for the next time you utter a sound musically. You also say you learned a lot from Art Blakey when you Ooh. when you played with him in the Jazz Messengers. Yes, yes. Not notes, but attitudes and aggressiveness and playing with fire. When I joined him, I was playing soft and mellow and smooth. It didn't work. It didn't work. We were playing somewhere, uh, Cafe Bohemia, I think it was in the village, and he would play these drum rolls going into the next course, and it was, they were so smooth, it was like tissue paper loud. Just sit you up for the next course. And he would do that, but when he would do it, nobody could hear me. And one night, he didn't give me the two bars, he gave me a four bar going into it. And he got overly loud. I mean, I was pantomiming. And when he came down on a new course, he came down with a crash, crash. And then another two or three beats, he gave me another crash. And then another two or three beats, he gave me another crash. I said, what is he doing? And he hollered over at me, get up out of that hole. <laughs> and that's what changed me. I said, I guess I am in a hole. I had to learn to play more aggressively, not just on one low level all the time. And I happened to mention it to Freddie Hubbard. He said, you too? That same thing happened to him. <laughs> yeah, incredible. Now, you ended up really managing that band. Yeah, he trusted me, yeah. Somehow, he just, I can't understand all that stuff because I was a greenhorn. Nobody really knew who I was. 
But I think what might have gotten his attention is this. <laughs> when I, I went in as a sub, I didn't go in as a member of the band, and I had the temerity to tell him, <laughs> Art, and somehow I knew he wasn't getting a lot of money when he was playing. I said, you should be a millionaire. I think that got his attention. I said, the way you play, you should be a millionaire. Have you been to Europe? He said, no. I said, you should be all over Europe. And then he looked at me with those sad cow eyes, and he asked me something that I never would have believed that would come from an artist like Art Blakey. He looked at me and said, can you help me? <laughs> and I don't believe what I said to him in return. I said, yes, if you do everything I tell you. <laughs> He said to me, what do I do? <laughs> I said, get a new band. <laughs> That's when we got Lee Morgan, Bobby Timmons, Jimmy Merritt. And then I told him, Art, when you play, you're playing a drum solo at the end of the tune like every other drummer. You got to play something where you start playing up front and let the people know that you're the leader. I said, remember what you did on Straight No Chaser with Monk? Let's start it with you. You start with the right hand, then the left hand, and then the bass drum, and then the hi-hat. You had four different things going at the same time. Remarkable. And then Straight No Chaser began, the name of the tune. I said, we need something like that to garner attention. And then I said, we were sitting somewhere in a restaurant talking. I said, you played everything there is to play, Art. Then I think, ah, I said, except a march. And he looked at me and said, you got to be kidding. Nobody plays a march in jazz except when you're going to a funeral in New Orleans. I said, no, I'm not talking about the typical military march. I said, have you ever heard that college in the south of black college grambling? I said, have you ever heard them play marches? I said, when they play their marches, the marches are dirty and greasy and funky. I said, I'm talking about that kind of a march. He said, Golson, he never did call me Benny. Golson, it'll never work. I said, well, let me, let, 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 let me go home and try. Golson is not going to I said, well, let me try. Said, All right. We were working at Small's Paradise then up in Harlem. I went home that night, and I said, a march. And I started thinking, but it needs a melody. And that's when I started. I put this melody together. And so I called the rehearsal the next day. And I said, okay, Art, you're going to start this. He said, well, uh, how long do I play? I said, uh, play as long as you want. He said, well, how will you and Lee know when to come in? I said, play, play a roll-off. He said, what's a roll-off? <laughs> I couldn't play on the drum, so I had to do it with my mouth. I said, play this. He said, oh, Golson, this is not going to work. I said, all right, just try it. And try to make it sound like a kind of hip military thing when you're playing your solo up in front. And so he did. And uh, I said, okay. If you've ever seen me perform, you know I like to talk. That night I gave it a big build-up, Small's Paradise. And I went on and on. Now, there was no dance in this club. And as the patrons sat down, they had a small table just enough for their drinks. You know, one of those kinds of things. But not room for dancing. We started Blues March. And we got into it. And Art added that kind of a backbeat, almost like a rock and roll thing, and that, that's almost a shuffle thing.
boy, the heads were bobbing and the people were moving. And after a while, they got up and started dancing and knocking the drinks over. And he looked over at me and said, I'll be so-and-so. <laughs> he didn't believe it. Every band that he had had to play Blues March and Along Came Betty. You didn't write Monin. No, no, no. Bobby but Timmons you, wrote that. But you were you were pretty instrumental in, in oh he thought it making was nothing. it happen. Oh yeah, he, Bobby had he had this little lick he used to play between tunes. We'd finish a tune and before we go to the next tune, and then he finished. He said, "Boy, sure is funky." And he did that for a while, a few weeks, and I thought, you know what? That's eight bars. That's sixteen bars, and that's the last eight bars. Now, if he had a bridge to that, that would be a song. So we got to Columbus, Ohio, and I called a rehearsal. And they were, we had all the music down. They were, well, what are we going to rehearse? We have everything down. Well, what are we going to do? I said, Bobby, you know that thing you play, Bobby? Dun, 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 dun. I said, if you put an eight-bar bridge to it, you've got a complete song. He said, oh, that's nothing. This is nothing. I said, Bobby, that's a good tune there. I said, we're going to go sit over here, and you go up on the bandstand, because nobody was in the club, and write a bridge. So about a half hour, he'd put something together and he played it for me I said oh Bobby no that's that's not it Bobby that's not the same flavor as the the lick that you're playing he said will you write it I said no Bobby this has got to be your tune just go back and just try to make it like get that same flavor for the bridge so we went back 20 minutes he called me and he didn't think much he said well here it is like this is nothing and he played I said that's it that's it. Come on, fellas, let's learn it. And so we played. I said, now, tonight, the audience is going to tell us what they think about this tune. So again, I announced it and brought special attention to it. and rocking, boy. I said, that's it. Now, how did you and Art Farmer get together to form the Jazz Tet? Art, I met Art Farmer when I joined Lionel Hampton in 1953. And uh, I got a chance to hear Art, and he had such a beautiful sound. His trumpet sound was fantastic. And we'd play together during that time. And then I eventually left Lionel Hampton, he did too, and so we were back in New York, and we were doing record dates here and there, and we became good friends. And uh, I decided, you know, there are lots of quartets and quintets playing, but very few sextets. 
those three horns, why don't I put something together? And with that extra horn, having those three voices, I could do things that I can't do with the two horns. So I said, who would be my trumpet player? Art Farmer. I called him up. I said, Art, I'm thinking about putting a sextet together, and I want you to be my trumpet player. He started laughing. I said, what? Why are you laughing? He said, you're not going to believe this. I was thinking about putting the sextet together, too, and I was going to call you to be my tenor player. <laughs> I said, well, come on by the house. Let's talk. So, yeah, so he hired the drummer, Dave Bailey, because they used to play together with Jerry Mulligan, and his twin brother, whom I used to confuse with him, on bass, Addison Farmer. I hired Curtis Fuller and brought a young unknown out of Philadelphia named McCoy Tyner as our piano player. And that was the original jazz tip. That's how it happened. Now, the name, we couldn't get a name. And Curtis Fuller, he's so clever with words and things. Instead of a sextet, he said, just call it the jazz tet. That was it. Benny, why the move to L.A.? I wanted to write for the movies. Yeah, because I'd been studying these advanced techniques with a fellow called Henry Brandt, who was the one who orchestrated... Remember Cleopatra with yeah. Elizabeth Taylor? He was the one who orchestrated that film for Alex North. And Spartacus, he orchestrated that. He was my teacher. And boy, he taught me so much stuff. The length and breadth of it that I couldn't use with writing something for Count Basie, it wasn't that kind of thing. Uh, symmetrical chords and pan-diatonic writing and mirror writing and stuff like that, I could never use for chess. only place I could use would be in Hollywood. You've written over 300 compositions easily. Do you think your melodies have a distinct style? Is there something that makes a Benny Golson tune a Benny Golson tune? Well, the key word you used was melody. I love melodies. That's why I love Chopin and Brahms and some of the others. Puccini. Oh, I love Puccini. Oh, those operas. Melody. Even if it's a fast tune, to me, I feel it should have some melodic content, something that you can go away humming rather than just calisthenics and athleticism. You know, something that you can grab a hold to, something you can remember. And uh, that's the only thing I can think. My favorite thing if I sit down to write is the ballad. I like beauty. And my inspiration, people say, well, what's your inspiration? Many things. Children at play, something in nature, and a lot of it, my wife, Bobby Golson. A lot of it's her, yeah. You put the saxophone down for oh, yeah. I didn't a play good it. long time. I didn't play the saxophone for, oh, I guess about six years. I said, oh, I played all I can play on a saxophone. I'm just going to write now. And then, lo and behold, I got the, got the itch again, <laughs> picked it up. And it was like getting over a stroke coming back. It took me a year before I could feel halfway comfortable. Now, what was it like when you came back to performing after that long time of not? Some nights I felt at the end of the night when people were patting me on the back, I felt like going to the microphone and apologizing. <laughs> felt like apologizing because... I stopped playing. It was easy for me to stop playing because I didn't like what I was playing. I didn't know what I wanted to play when I wanted to write. But when I came back, a strange thing had happened. I wasn't playing the way I was playing when I stopped. The thinking process must have been going on, but I never put it to practice. But it still wasn't what I wanted to do, you know. And I guess I was just going through a, a period, and it wasn't working. It wasn't satisfying me. So I know it wasn't satisfying anybody else. 
And today, I guess I'm not thoroughly satisfied. I don't guess one is ever really totally satisfied. There's a danger of becoming too satisfied, I think, because then you level off and the ship sails off as you're falling overboard, you know. <laughs> you know, looking back at your career, I see how important mentors played at various points. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, didn't, I don't know everything, and I don't know everything today. Now that you're a mentor, what do you want to impart to your students? Keep an open mind and weigh everything carefully. Don't discard anything until you know what it's about. And don't ever be satisfied with yourself. There's always something new to learn, believe me, and no one person knows it all. Never be satisfied. That's dangerous. Benny Golson, <laughs> you are a national treasure. Oh, I don't know if I believe that. I know when I go home, my wife's going to tell me to put the trash out. Yeah, I know, but that's okay. <laughs> Both things can be true. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for everything, truly. That was composer, tenor saxophonist, and 1996 jazz master, Benny Golson. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Flying Home, composed and performed by Lionel Hampton, from the album Flying Home, used courtesy of LRC Limited and Groove Merchant Records. Excerpt from Cottontail, composed by Duke Ellington and performed by Duke Ellington and his great orchestra, from the album The Essential Duke Ellington, used courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. Excerpt from A Night in Tunisia, composed by Dizzy Gillespie, John Hendricks, and Frank Paparelli. Performed by Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. From the album Town Hall, New York City, June 22, 1945. Used courtesy of Uptown Records. Excerpt from Stablemates, composed by Benny Golson and performed by the new Miles Davis Quintet. From the album Miles, the new Miles Davis Quintet used courtesy of the Concord Music Group. Excerpts from Stablemates, performed by Benny Golson and the Philadelphians, used courtesy of Blue Note Records, EMI. Excerpt from Blues March, composed by Benny Golson and performed by Benny Golson and the Philadelphians, used courtesy of Blue Note Records, EMI. Excerpts from Monin, composed by Bobby Timmons and performed by Benny Golson and the Philadelphians, Use courtesy of Blue Note Records, EMI. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, poet and dramatist, Claudia Rankine. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.